Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is James O'Connell, and I'm an editorial fellow at the NEGM. On this episode of Curbside Consults, we're going to discuss the benefits of sodium glucose co-transporter 2, SGLT2, inhibitors in patients with heart failure. SGLT2 inhibitors are well-established as improving cardiovascular and renal outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes. 2015, the emperor outcome trial changed the landscape in diabetes management by showing a lower risk of cardiovascular disease with empagliflozin use. Similarly, in 2019, the Credence trial showed that canagliflozin could prevent or delay the progression to end-stage renal disease in patients with type 2 diabetes. This was known about the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors on heart failure, but some recent trials published in NEGM provided much-needed evidence to change clinical practice when managing patients with heart failure. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John McMurray, Professor of Cardiology and Lead Investigator of one such trial. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, Professor McMurray? Of course, James. Thank you very much for interviewing me. So, I'm John McMurray. I work at the University of Glasgow in Scotland in the United Kingdom, and I'm a cardiologist in one of our local hospitals, the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. And I'm also a clinical trialist, and my special interest is in heart failure. Great, and thank you for joining us, Professor McMurray, and welcome. Well, to begin with, our first question, how did it come about that researchers thought SGLT2 inhibitors may be beneficial in treating heart failure? So as you mentioned, James, in 2015, we saw the results of the EMPA-REG outcome trial. And although it was only a secondary outcome, there was a very striking effect of empagliflozin to reduce the risk of developing heart failure in patients who largely didn't have heart failure at baseline. And maybe more importantly, we saw that that benefit was apparent very soon after randomization. It appeared that the Kaplan-Meier curves for incident heart failure hospitalization separated really within weeks or certainly a few months of starting treatment. So that suggested to us that these drugs are clearly doing something good, at least in terms of preventing heart failure. And naturally, what we wanted to know then was, well, actually, could we also use them beneficially in patients with established heart failure? And of course, we knew that many patients with heart failure have type 2 diabetes. Many of those who don't have type 2 diabetes have got pre-diabetes or dysglycemia. So again, whether this was a non-glucose-mediated beneficial effect or whether it was a glucose-mediated beneficial effect, it seemed that there was a strong case to at least try and test whether or not SGLT2 inhibitors would be beneficial in patients with established heart failure. Didn't think it was a glucose-mediated effect because it happened so quickly, but uh, that was where we were at back in 2015 when we started to think about this trial. And you touched on there the potential mechanism of action for its, its benefits. If it wasn't a glucose-mediated effect, what other potential explanations are there? Well, that's the million-dollar question. So at the time, we didn't really have many explanations. But I suppose over the past five years or so, we've learned a lot more. So clearly, we now know that these drugs also prevent deterioration in kidney function. And of course, what causes the signs and symptoms of heart failure other than renal sodium and water retention? So that's potentially one mechanism. Secondly, there's been a lot of at least experimental data, maybe not in humans, but in experimental animals, 
that these drugs might modify myocardial metabolism, make the heart more energy efficient. And of course, we know that the failing heart is an energy starved heart. And then there are other interesting, but maybe more speculative effects. Although very recently, one thing that we have found in two smaller mechanistic studies is that these drugs definitely reduce the enlarged heart in patients with HEF-REF, so they reduce ventricular volumes. And in one of those two recent mechanistic studies in patients with HEF-REF, we also saw a substantial improvement in ejection fraction. So for the first time, interesting evidence that these drugs somehow or another are having a direct and favorable effect on cardiac function. So really interesting that the effect is more than its anti-glycemic effect, that it does actually have a direct on yeah, the cardiac function. Definitely. Would you like to tell us perhaps a bit about the trial you led, Dapagoslozin in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, the DAPA-HF trial? Yes, of course. So our study was a trial in 4,744 patients. We enrolled those patients in 20 countries around the world. It was a typical trial in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So the patients had symptoms. They were in NYHA classes 2 to 4. They had a reduced ejection fraction. By that, we mean an ejection fraction of 40% or less. And they also had a modest elevation in natriuretic peptide levels. We had very few exclusion criteria. The important exclusion criteria were patients with type 1 diabetes and patients with an EGFR less than 30 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And of course, what was unique about DAPHF was that this was the first trial to enroll patients without type 2 diabetes. So, in fact, the majority, 55% of patients in DAPHF, didn't have type 2 diabetes at baseline. So, clearly, what we were really interested to see was would dapagliflozin be beneficial in heart failure patients, both with and without type 2 diabetes? In other words, was this really a drug for heart failure per se, as opposed to just a treatment for glucose lowering in patients with type 2 diabetes? Right. So a unique feature of uh, the trial you conducted at the time was that it included patients without diabetes um, in its enrollment. Recently, two other trials, the Emperor Reduced trial and the Soloist WHF trial, uh, examined the effects of SGLT2 inhibitors on heart failure or published in NEJM also. Uh, what did those trials add to the literature in this area? So, yes, the journal published two very important new trials. So Emperor Reduced was a trial that was pretty similar to DAPHF in design, although the inclusion criteria were slightly different patients either had to have a lower ejection fraction or higher natriuretic peptide levels. So these were patients at somewhat higher risk. Obviously, it used a different SGLT2 inhibitor, empagliflozin, rather than dapagliflozin. It had an almost identical endpoint. And remarkably, both of these trials, so they were both trials in ambulatory symptomatic patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, both of these trials showed almost an identical relative risk reduction. So a 25, 26% relative risk reduction in the primary endpoint. What soloist worsening heart failure did, and it's a critically important advance, is that it enrolled patients who had been hospitalized with worsening heart failure. So soloist 
randomized patients either during a hospital admission or within three days of hospital discharge. Now, there were some other differences in soloist, but I think that was the key one. It did include some patients with the other major heart failure phenotype, heart failure with preserved ejection fractions, so that's interesting. It only enrolled patients with type 2 diabetes. It didn't include patients with heart type 2 diabetes, but we don't really think that makes a difference because both DAP-AHF and Emperor-reduced each showed a similar reduction in the primary endpoint in patients with and without type 2 diabetes. So the fact that Solo has just included patients with type 2 diabetes is, is I don't think, either here nor there. And Solo's worsening heart failure essentially showed the same thing, showed a reduction in the composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. It used slightly different endpoints. It included repeat or recurrent events. Uh, included worsening heart failure that didn't necessarily lead to hospital admission, but essentially it's the same. And of course, as you know, James, what's most critical here is that if you have three separate trials with three separate drugs showing the same effect, then essentially that's the kind of really strong, robust evidence that we would like to have in order to change guidelines and to change practice to guide a new way of treating patients. So both the Emperor-reduced trial and the DAPA-HF trial used a composite outcome of destitute cardiovascular causes and hospitalization for heart failure. How should we interpret these composite outcomes in clinical practice? Yeah, that's a good question. So traditionally in trials, we do use what we call composite outcomes. So it's a composite outcomes. So usually they're analyzed as time to first event. So it's whatever happens first to a patient in, in those components. So either worsening heart failure, or maybe the patient sadly dies from a cardiovascular cause. So that's what we look at. There are advantages of that. Those are the two important things that happen to patients with heart failure. The composite clearly gives you more events, and that makes the trial more manageable, more affordable, and so on. But of course, when you look at a composite, you want to look at the components of that, because we'd like to know is there an effect on, on worsening heart failure events? Is there an effect on cardiovascular death? In our trial, we saw a 30% reduction, relative risk reduction in worsening heart failure events. And there was a 30% relative risk reduction specifically in heart failure hospitalization. And interestingly, not just first heart failure hospitalizations, but if you looked at the total number, so you know obviously patients with heart failure can be admitted to hospital multiple times over the course of their time in a trial, we saw not just a reduction in first admissions, but also in total admissions first and repeat admissions. And then in our trial, we also saw a 18% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular mortality that was by itself statistically significant. Now, that wasn't seen in the Emperor Reduced trial or the Silverist Worsening Heart Failure trial, but those other two trials were smaller trials. So I don't think it's about the effect of the treatment. I think it's about the statistical power. If you put all three trials together in a meta-analysis, which has now been done, then you do see a clear reduction in all-cause mortality and in cardiovascular mortality. And then maybe the only other thing to say, James, that in both Emperor Reduced and in DAP-HF, in both trials, we use something called the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, which is a patient-reported outcome. So this is where the patient 
fills in a questionnaire telling us about the impact heart failure has on their symptoms or quality of life or ordinary everyday activities and so on. And although we use slightly different scores in emperor reduced and DAP-HF in both trials, we saw a statistically significant improvement in symptoms and quality of life. So basically what the three trials together tell us is that this new type of treatment does what I think you would want any drug to do for a patient with heart failure. It makes them feel better or at least stops their symptoms deteriorating over time, keeps them out of hospital and it keeps them alive. And there are some other benefits as well. These treatments seem to reduce the risk, as I mentioned, of kidney function getting worse over time which is a big deal in patients with heart failure as well as obviously other patients. So um, it's really been amazing to see so much evidence in such a short period of time in these three studies published in the journal. Sure. And with the evidence provided from these three studies, what patients should now be put on SGLT2 inhibitors? It might be easier to say what HEFREF patients shouldn't be put on them because, interestingly, some U.S. colleagues used a very large US database called the Get With the Guidelines Heart Failure Registry to look at what proportion of patients would be eligible. They used DAPHF because that was the agent that had been approved at the time. And they found that about 80% of HEFREF patients in that US data set would be eligible for treatment with an SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, maybe even more than that because Emperor Reduced probably extends the inclusion window for this sort of treatment. So who shouldn't get it? Well, the number one exclusion criteria is type one diabetes. So patients with type one diabetes should not get an SGLT2 inhibitor. Patients with a very low glomerular filtration rate. So as I mentioned in DAPHF, we went down to 30. Emperor Reduced went down to 20 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And in fact, the regulatory labeling in many countries doesn't even mention a lower EGFR limit. But I would think for most doctors, 20 is probably as low as you want to go, except in special cases. And really, other than that, those are probably the two key exclusion criteria. If you have a patient who has type 2 diabetes and is on insulin, and has a history of ketoacidosis, that is another patient that you would probably maybe not treat or at least be very careful in treating because one of the rare side effects with this treatment is ketoacidosis. So that would probably be the only other exclusion criteria to consider. So in treatment algorithms for heart failure, where do SGLT2 inhibitors fit in with other treatments? Well, James, that's the hardest question of all, and that's the one that the whole world of heart failure is discussing at the moment. I mean, clearly because these treatments are also a treatment for diabetes. If you have a patient with type 2 diabetes and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, it would be right at the top of your algorithm. Similarly, because SGLT2 inhibitors, we know, slow the progression of kidney failure to end-stage kidney disease, then again, in a patient who's got heart failure and chronic kidney disease, it would be right at the top of your algorithm. And I think the debate is about the other patients. And I would say there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that this is a single dose for everybody. 
there's no dose titration like there is for all of our other heart failure drugs. It's the benefit of this treatment is seen within less than 30 days of starting treatment in both. In fact, in all three of the trials we've discussed, that analysis has been done and there's a statistically significant reduction in the adverse outcomes of interest within 28 days. So here you have a treatment that is very easy to use, hardly any side effects, takes immediate effect, requires no titration. So the people who look at it that way would say, well, we should use this sooner rather than later. And I have some sympathy for that, but I also think we should wait for the new guidelines. Both sides of the Atlantic will be publishing new guidelines in the first part of 2021. So I think we'll get the guideline committee viewing that in the not too distant future. Right. And finally, for prescribers, uh, should there be any concern about the risk of hypoglycemia with SGLT2 inhibitor use? So uh, again, great question, because I think a lot of doctors understandably think that a drug that was originally introduced to lower glucose could cause hypoglycemia. So the first thing to say is that in emperor-reduced and in DAPHF, so in, in chronic ambulatory patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, in the patients who did not have diabetes, so patients who did not have diabetes at baseline, no hypoglycemia, no diabetic ketoacidosis. So hypoglycemia is only a potential risk in patients with type 2 diabetes being treated with other glucose-lowering therapy. These drugs by themselves probably don't cause hypoglycemia. It's when they're combined with other glucose-lowering therapies, particularly insulin, particularly sulfonylureas, that you can get hypoglycemia. But to be honest, James, in our trial in DAPHF, so remember 4,744 patients, we had four cases of hypoglycemia in the placebo arm and four cases in the dapagliflozin arm although all four cases in the dapagliflozin arm were in patients with type 2 diabetes. So the people to, the only people I think you need to worry about this in are people who have a history of hypoglycemia, and there are not many of them who have a very well-controlled uh, glucose level. People with a glycated hemoglobin, for example, have set of maybe 7% or less in those individuals. You might want to think about reducing their other glucose-lowering therapy when you add an SGLT2 inhibitor, although generally you have to not reduce the dose of insulin too much. That's sometimes what can lead to a ketoacidosis. So maybe if you're a cardiologist and you're not an internist and you're not too comfortable with handling insulin, you maybe want to do that in consultation with your local friendly endocrinologist. It seems from our discussion in this podcast, SGLT2 inhibitors will form a significant role in treating patients with heart failure, both with and without type 2 diabetes. And reasons why a prescriber wouldn't use them would be a history of type 1 diabetes, a reduced glomerular filtration rate, and a history of type 2 diabetes with diabetic ketoacidosis. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Professor John McMurray for joining us today in our discussion about SGLT2 inhibitors and their benefits in patients with heart failure. Our production team here, NEGM Resident 360, includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Cathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEGM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at 
resident360.negm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEGM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEGM.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is James O'Connell signing off.